Failure, from the sermon series, The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Dan Bailey. Doing a series like The Soul of Shame is a little bit more difficult to prepare for than some other series, you know, maybe on success or joy or something like that. This is the, the shame of failure that I'm going to be talking about today, because in the preparation, it forces you, in a sense, to go down the corridor of your past and stop at different points of departure and places of brokenness. And as you're engaging with the sermon, too, in the text, uh, you're going to filter through your own life experiences because we kind of all share in this. And um, as we engage it together, I just want to encourage you to be willing to go forward, to trust uh, that the Holy Spirit, he's not come to condemn the world, uh, but to comfort and bring you into the truth about yourself so that you can live in the fullness of God. So there's freedom at the end of this. So as you go forward, just uh, allow God to do this work. And so would you pray with me that we uh, just open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in this next several minutes. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the opportunity, even the honor to offer your word today. And I pray, God, because it's your word that the Holy Spirit would bring it to the recesses of our heart, um, the dark corners, the corners that you want to shed the light of your truth so that, Lord, we would never live less than you've called us to be, that we'd walk in the fullness of our identity in Christ and God today, that shame would no longer govern our lives as we go forward together. So I ask you, Father, to do this uh, great work within us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sports was kind of a calling card for me when I was growing up. It was a way I could kind of separate myself from the crowd, at least, within a big family. But part of what motivated me in sports was uh, a dismal beginning to my academic career, beginning in kindergarten. Now, I know how hard can kindergarten be, but let me tell you. Okay. Well, I, I think I've actually gotten better looking. I'm not sure. But can I just say one disclaimer here? That haircut. My grandfather was a barber. But somehow my dad did not learn the trade. Every picture for school looks the same, a crooked hairline. I don't understand it. So that's where, how I began. That's actually my kindergarten photo. I still had some hope. On day one, when I got there, I was, in the first two days, I was convicted of back-to-back -back kindergarten crimes. When our class went out for recess on, on the first day, I didn't know my class came back in. In fact, I didn't even know who my classmates were. There were always other kids coming out to play. And I was like, this is the greatest experience of my life. It's like being at home, but I got more than my backyard. There's a jungle gym and all these things. So I stayed out all day. A teacher brought me in at the end of the day and said, does this student belong to you and my teacher, Mrs. McDowell? I ain't, I've forgotten her name was boiling red because I think maybe embarrassed that she didn't know I was missing. Uh, we register kids now, but this is old school days, you know? You come back, you just count. You don't need to have the necessary same kids, you just need the number to match, you know? But this is where I was introduced to the punishment. Now this is 
old school discipline in the state of Ohio. It's a public school, mind you, but they paddled kids, and I was introduced to a giant wooden paddle. Unheard of. It was as big as us as little kids. And I don't know, Mrs. McDonald, I don't like the song Old McDonald, she used to make us sing it. She, she could have played for the Yankees, because she could swing that thing. So the term, uh, grab your ankles, I soon learned was not referring to the game of leapfrog, which I played in the neighborhood. It was something altogether. It was assuming the position for punishment. On day two, I was convicted of the crime of pelting the dollhouse with building blocks, which made perfect sense to me because I just learned how to pitch. I learned to wind up, and I was throwing pretty accurate. But at home, that's just like a minor, that's like a misdemeanor. It was a felony with Mrs. McDonald, and so... I got the treatment again on day two, and they did this in front of kids. So very early on, you know, I I got the idea, the feeling, because all of these were innocent mistakes. Like, I wasn't the rebellious kid. I just kept, couldn't get out of my own way. Like, I didn't get it. I was always confused. And so this told me that I must not be very good in school. I must be less than smart. I must be dumb. And, I, and great anxiety in, in time, because I've got a treasure trove of stories along these lines, and my children know most of them. I just want to welcome my children here to the left. If you could give them the Queen's Wave. Yeah, my son, you can do the Queen's Wave, too. And, and I got family over here. Dave Julian, Coach Julian, he's the director for FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the Bronx. Uh, longtime friend, a former player and coach. Shame has a way of seeping in and telling us about ourselves and lying to us about who we are. So because I felt so bad as a student and it created anxiety, I just blocked that out. That's not going to be me. And I had an older brother who really took me under his wing as a protege, my brother Steve, four years older than me. And he he took me around with all his friends and always believed in me. And so sports was a way I could feel really good about myself. And so I went all in. Like, that was, that's who I'm going to be. When I got to third grade, I could play on my first Little League team. It was baseball. That was my first love. And on that team, we made it to the championship game. I was the star pitcher because I just threw harder than other kids my age. But I also threw very wild. I wasn't very accurate. And so I struck everyone out because they were terrified of me. <laughs> And so kids would stand about eight yards from the plate, just sitting there, and just couldn't wait. They weren't trying to win the game. They were trying to survive and go home and play with toys. But in the championship game, up 3-0 in the last inning, just need three outs. The coach on the other team, I'm a former coach, though I look at it now as a savvy move, but it seemed cruel at the time. But he told his players, don't swing at anything he throws. He's going to walk us all and we're gonna win the game if you just don't swing. And his prediction came true. The kids sat there, and I kept pitching and trying my hardest, but I could not throw a strike. My brother had practiced me for hours the day before. My arm was just hanging. I just couldn't do it. And in between pitches, I was literally, visibly to everyone there, praying to God that he would deliver me from this nightmare. Because everything for me, even as a young kid, this was me. I was confident this wasn't supposed to happen. And so every pitch, ball, I would step back, and I figured, because in church, I got this idea, as a lot of people do, sometimes this doctrine of demons, a religious doctrine, 
that says you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. I assumed I must be really bad because God's not answering my prayer and I can't throw a strike. He's not helping me. So I began to confess sins after every pitch. Sorry for teasing my sister. And people are watching me and they're sort of mocking, but I don't care about that. If I can win, I've salvaged, I've justified myself at least because that's, that's who I am. And then I you know, ball again, I would say, Lord, I stole from my brother John's piggy bank multiple times. I can't really count, but you, you know them. Nothing, no matter what I confessed, it didn't work. And finally, with two outs, I'd managed two outs, two, two of those suckers, those kids swung, and I got outs, but they also tied the game, and it was three, just from me walking them around. I needed one out. Finally, a kid hit the ball, and that was unusual. So the ball came to me. I fielded it. And I was so excited, I, I threw to first base to finish that inning, and it went over his head, and the winning run came around. And the whole playground, this, this little league field with all the other teams who come for the championship game and parents watching their own kids play, just erupted. And there was just a pylon on home plate, just euphoria that, you know, I guess I was Goliath, and they were David at that time. It was just for them this big win. And I just stunned on the mound, felt completely naked and ashamed, alone by myself. I just slumped to the ground and tears flowed for about a week. Now, I know there's bigger problems in life. And right now, some of you have stories that go way, way deeper, and we all have stories. But at this point in my juncture, in my young life, the place I decided that I would be unique, I would be noticed, I would be seen, was the very place I failed the hardest. That failure felt fatal to my soul. So what do you do when your identity gets rocked? Either fight or flight, right? Well, for me, after a week of sobbing and my dad not knowing what to do with me, I, I finally got it together and I just determined in my own heart that I'm not gonna fail again. Now, as a coach, that's kind of, uh, you pat yourself on the back for that. We hear these stories like, failure taught me I'm going to be great and I've never failed again. And I might have gone down that road just to, Coach Dave, I'm sorry if I ever used that speech, to get a win at a moment. I, I, I don't know. But that's really, really not the case at all. Failure has a way of... Um, creeping into our soul and behind all the boxes of trophies and plaques that I've earned in my life, it was a driving force behind so much of what I did. And yet, so yes, success did work, or failure did work to help me do a lot of significant things in sports, as a coach, and other, in business. But it was also the motivating factor behind so many of the failures of my life. The things that don't hang on walls, that you show up with your accomplishments that you don't put in a resume, they just line the walls of your mind, kind of like a wall of shame. Peter, the Apostle Peter was someone familiar with failure too. He was steeped in shame even before he met Jesus. He was kind of a rough fisherman and Jesus called him. And when Jesus called him to follow, he was so blown away. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He couldn't even accept that. But Jesus doesn't call us with question marks, right? So Peter followed, and I'm sure in time he thought, this is a major upgrade because I'm following the rising star, Jesus of Nazareth, who is a masterful teacher, and some are rumoring to be the Messiah. He's going to liberate the Jewish people, and I'm on that team. I'm one of the 12. 
And so the apostles would argue over who would be the greatest because they believed it would be a kingdom that Jesus would inaugurate here in power. And that was all well and good for Peter for a while. I mean, this is Peter's whole discipleship was marked by trying to prove himself worthy of the calling. Anybody know what that's like? Prove that you're worthy to exist. Justify his life. He had left an old one, but he needed to justify himself now that he was in this new position as one of Jesus's 12. And that's why we see throughout the gospels that Peter was always a little extra, right? The loudest, the proudest, the first to try thing, the most impulsive. He was the one who walked on water for a minute, right? And he was also one that drew his sword when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus. He was willing to fight to death. He loved Jesus, but shame also ran his life. So it's possible and it's been true in my life to be devoted to someone, devoted to God, but shame says and dictates things because when our identity is at stake, we're not sure how we're going to respond. And so this is Peter. In time, he's going to fail in a way. In a short time, Jesus knew it. He's going to fail in a way he never thought he would did. And that's where our scripture will pick up today in Luke 22, beginning with verses 31 through 34. It's the section of scripture that talks about Jesus predicting Peter's denial. He knew it's coming. And then we'll skip ahead to uh, verses 54, reading through 62. And this is where the drama plays out. And Peter fails the one he loves in the worst way imaginable, in the way he never, ever thought he would. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now skipping ahead to verse 54, this is Luke, the author, speaking about Jesus. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am... I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went out side and he wept bitterly. What do you do when failure feels fatal to your soul? For Peter, after devoting his life to Jesus, this was the kind of failure you don't come back from. The betrayal of the one he loved the most. Ever been there? Where your failure or the sum of your failures felt like too much to come back from? When your reputation lies in ruins? So much so you don't even really know who you are when you look in the mirror anymore. Maybe it's the failure of a relationship that haunts you, that makes you feel less than who you used to be. 
or the shame that you harbor for not having lived up to family expectations, the job you, career path you never took, or the kids you never had that at every reunion or family get-together hangs over you like a cloud. Perhaps it's the team you didn't make or the, that says you're a failure or the test you didn't pass that says you're stupid. Perhaps it's the images of beauty that you see all around you and it reminds you of the gossip that you heard about you, about your appearance that makes you feel less than. Maybe it's the shame of lost opportunity because of choices you made when you're younger that darkens your countenance today, a countenance that once was bright with dreams and possibilities. Or maybe it's the remorse of a parenting fail or two or three Anybody else with me on that? That makes you feel responsible for every struggle of your child going forward and maybe behind some of the overcompensation that you do with your children. All of us have failures in our memory that make us cringe at night when they sneak up on us or they tap us on the shoulder at the most inopportune times. Maybe you feel like your failure or the sum of them is just too much to come back from. So you've chosen to play it safe like Peter who went back to his fishing career, feeling you don't, you don't come back from this, has accepted his lot and will live a less than kind of existence, at least trying to be respectably numb. For those of you like me, who have felt the devastating effects of failure and today still live with a debilitating sense of shame, I want you to know there's really good news. Your failure is far from fatal. In God's hands, failure is the fertile soil God uses to make fruitful people. Failure is the fertile soil God uses to cultivate fruitful people. The gardener of your soul, he's not done. God wants to take your failure and make you exceedingly fruitful to his glory. Our text reveals three ways God uses failure to make fruitful people, just like he did Peter and just like he can do for you and for me today. First, failure becomes fruitful when you begin to understand that God believes in you. I know that you've heard, and it's true, that we need to have faith in God and believe in God that doesn't do us a lot of good if we have the wrong understanding or wrong concept of God. That the truth about you is that your story, who you are, begins and ends with the truth of your belovedness to God. You have the praise, the belief of the most praiseworthy. Look at verse 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. People, you can't disappoint a God who knew you before he formed you. Who before you spoke a word knew every word you would say. This is a God who saw it all, who fashioned you in his imagination and who brought you. So only God can truly understand your great value. Jesus prayed that Peter didn't, Jesus didn't pray that Peter would not fail him. He prayed that his faith 
would not fail him. That what he wanted Peter to know, and he knew before Peter can go deeper and go further and live out this calling on his life, that he needed to know there's a love that would never fail him. And this is the great truth that God wants to get across to us, that our faith in the love of God can hold us. It's sweeter than your greatest success, and it's stronger than your worst failure. If there was a $100 bill on the floor when you walk outside, I'm sure most of us would pick it up. Maybe a couple real saints would put it in the offering plate. Others might feel shame when they're at the Starbucks or wherever they're going, but the $100 bill would be a $100 bill, and if it was crumpled in a ball and you found it and unfolded it, it would remain a $100 bill. If it was soaked in mud and dirt and you found it buried in the ground and dug it up, and it was hardly recognizable, it has the full value of a $100 bill. The bank will recognize it as a $100 bill even when it's broken, cut, torn, tattered, because its value is inherently there. God knows your value. And the beginning of your freedom from this nemesis of shame is to know that God believes in you. Secondly, God stands for you. After the rooster crowed, Peter, giving Peter that moment of clarity, like a cold bucket of water to the face, we read in verses 61 through 62, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. As shame condemned Peter, Jesus gave Peter a look that spoke the language of a perfect love. Isn't that amazing? I, I think I know how I would respond if somebody I counted on or loved just completely failed me in my biggest trial or moment. Most of us, that would be an end of a friendship. For Judas, he went out and hung himself. He couldn't take it. But I think there was something about that look. It wasn't the look of condemnation, it was the look of perfect love that helped Peter hang on. I know for you or for me, I might forgive, but I wouldn't forget. And here's Jesus looking right at Peter saying, I've got you. I'm standing for you. I stand for you not only at your best, I stand for you at your worst. I stand for you in the midst of your shame. This is a love unlike natural love. This is perfect love staring back at Peter when he's failed the one he loves the most. A perfect love that always believes, that stands tall. In that moment, Jesus was saying something that Peter couldn't quite yet understand. I'm taking your shame to the cross. You don't understand what this is about. But this is the reason I've offered myself up to the Roman guards. I'm about to carry the cross on my back. It has everything that you're embarrassed or ashamed of. I'm carrying it for you. Hold on. Hold on. I'm taking it. I'm taking it with me. And in one grand exile for all of humanity, with his arms stretched wide, Jesus uttered these words as he died, it is finished. And in that moment gave a death blow to sin and shame and the power of it over your life. It has no more power over you. It can't govern you. It has as much power as we give it. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? There's been an exchange that God has stepped in and accepted our rags for his riches, that he's stepped into the fray of your life and he's exchanged your poor performance record He's taken that and he's buried it. He's put it away because he included you in his death and resurrection. And in rising again in his life, he has robed you and given you his credit. When you go to the bank, I know Ariel's a former banker, so she understands this. It's about you and your credit. And Jesus wants you to know today that he stands for you, that you never have to live in fear or doubt trying to justify your existence because you have been given the righteousness of God in your life. Imagine the freedom that comes from truly knowing that you have nothing to prove with God. Jesus stands for you. When I was in first grade, I did make it to first grade. (laughs) And because kindergarten was so rough, I just tuned out in classes. I did it throughout most of my, through high school. I started to get it together in college and grad school. Lord redeemed some things. But in first grade, forget about it. It was just a source of anxiety, a place I didn't want to be. And so as usual, I wasn't paying attention to the instructions. And I was somewhere making a fadeaway jumper at the buzzer or hitting a home run or doing it in my happy place when the teacher or someone passing uh, the paper put a large piece of construction paper on my desk and a handful of crayons. And so I looked around, kind of startled out of my slumber and looked around and people are drawing pictures. And so I'm like, okay, guess it's picture time. I don't know. So I drew a clock because I had learned recently to tell time. And I'm not an artist. My kids over here have asked me sometimes to just draw something so they can laugh at me. If I were to draw a cow, you would see a rectangle, a round head, and straight stick legs, and a tail, and that's what you get. I was not an artist, but how could you mess up a clock? I mean, I just followed what was on the wall, made a circle, put the hands, big hand, little hand. As the students went up to share their picture and describe what they were drawing about, it never dawned on me that there was a common theme at play here. The first student came up with a turkey, picture of a turkey, and the next was a pilgrim. Anybody see where this is going? (laughs) But it didn't dawn on me. I was just infatuated with my clock, you know. I figured this might be a moment of redemption in my academic life. I don't know if every kid knows how to tell time. Then someone brought up an Indian handing corn, and then my turn came up. And the teacher said to me, Sweet lady, turned out she was a Christian. I didn't know it at the time, but she said, Dan, what do you have for us? And I pulled up that poster of a clock. I said, I drew a clock, proud as a peacock, and there were giggles. And I was confused by the giggles, but I'm still standing strong. And then someone said, what does a clock have to do with Thanksgiving? And everyone erupted into laughter, and that feeling of shame just engulfed my soul again. There I was, naked and ashamed, my shoulders slump, 
I bring the picture down. I, I can't even move. And it probably was 10 seconds or less, but it seemed like an eternity. And as I'm sitting there in the midst of my shame, this teacher steps in almost in front of me, puts her arm around me tight and leans forward and says, class, this is an amazing piece of artwork. And everyone got quiet because she's the teacher. She's the one who grades. She had the respect of the class, right? So they have to listen. They're like, they're confused, but they're listening. She says, not only is it a great rendering of a clock, it's just like the clock on our wall. But this picture there's a, shows us the deeper meaning of Thanksgiving, that there's never a bad time to give thanks. Dan has told us the true meaning of Thanksgiving. <laughs> Let me tell you, I bounced up. But how you like me now, huh? <laughs> this is what Jesus does for you in real life, in the real fray of life, when the stakes are much higher. He stands for you. And Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness. God stands for you, people. He believes in you because he fashioned you and he stands for you. And lastly, failure becomes fruitful when you begin to understand God's glory rests on you. I know all of these statements kind of take you back. Aren't we gonna give him glory? But you have to understand that through adoption that God's glory is tied to you so when Jesus died and rose again, it was great that he did it because he believed in us. And because he did it, he can gift us his righteousness. So we have perfect standing with God by faith in what he's done. But he didn't stop there. He did not leave us as orphans. He gave us his spirit. And so when Jesus left physically, he gave us his Holy Spirit. So that through adoption... The glory we lost in the Garden of Eden is found again in Jesus Christ. Verse 32 says this, and when you have turned back, talking to Peter, this is Jesus knowing he's gonna fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for him, knowing he'd fail. He believed he'd turn back, and he, he's saying, Reconnection to me allows you to return to your true self. The truth about yourself is that you were made for God. You were formed in his image and you were claimed a second time when he died and rose for you and he now can indwell you to be the children of God. John 1, 11 through 13 puts it this way. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. How profound. No one had ever heard of this at the time, because this was a novel idea, but this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus confronts all cultural norms, traditional culture that says, your identity is formed who you are and how you should feel about yourself is how well you adapt and conform to the standards of your family, of society. 
But that doesn't hold up because what if they don't judge you fairly? What if that breaks down? And so there's been a reaction in our culture to what we call expressive individualism that says you can find yourself if you look deep within and imagine in the outbreak of anxiety that exists today because none of us were meant to carry the, the weight of godhood to determine who we're supposed to be. My desires conflict. You may love someone, but you also love your job, and you're never sure what's running things, and we wear different hats. There has to be a core identity that determines everything else about your life, and so all the other loves and the beautiful things of life can fall in order because you have found the connection that identifies you and determines and defines who you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us that identity can't be achieved. It must be received, and it's received by his grace. Why is it the hardest thing for us to believe is that God could be that good? 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You have been conferred a name. You have been given the honor of God's name on your life. So that means that success is fine. Be successful. Do well in your jobs, in your family. But you know what? It pales in comparison to the glory you already have that you can achieve. That God's not endeared with you over your performance. That you can enjoy success, but it's not the thing because you've been conferred the honor of God's name. His glory rests on you and it holds everything else together. Not only your success, but it keeps it in perspective. It allows you to live without the fear of failure, to trust and go forward. And you find you, you're actually following him more, but if you fail, there is a identity that cannot be severed because it's a love and a connection that will hold underneath and hold you together during your worst failure. Peter had to learn this before God could release him to become this amazing apostle that he would be. Before failure, Peter was about success. And I'll tell you, that is a slippery slope. It's good while it lasts. But if that's your thing, it will fail you. And in the end, it can't help you. And if it's a person, you will find out that that person is human and they weren't meant to be your savior either. Imagine how Peter, after being loved and believed in and knew it, he had to go through this failure to discover these amazing truths. But look what happened. He became God's chosen one to deliver the message of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came, it was Peter that defined to everyone that God had to die and rise and go to heaven, but he, he didn't leave us as orphans. He gave us his spirit so that we can become the sons and daughters of God. His glory rests upon you. We're his children, his ambassadors, his messengers. We've been given this honor. It was Peter, but he had to fail to get there. It was Peter that God gave the vision to. I don't know how many get visions. The Holy Spirit works in a lot of different ways. But he gave him the dream that the gospel wasn't just for the Jewish people or a nation or a sect. Not only is it about grace, you can't earn it, but it was for everyone. The Gentiles were welcome. He used Peter, a Jewish fisherman, gave him the vision. 
and opened his mind through the Holy Spirit that the gospel was for everyone. That's why we're all here together from different backgrounds, places, and every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather when this is all over and worship the one who holds everything together. Can you imagine a church living into the truth of who they really were? Imagine if we really believed it, that it wasn't just here, but somehow it got here. I think that's why worship is so important. It's the way truth gets and begins to take over our life. It would dispel the shame if we really believed these truths, that God believes in you, that he stands for you in your shame and gives you his righteousness and that he's conferred his name upon you, his glory rests upon you. I can tell you things would change. There would be a creative outburst here because when you finally are free from thinking about yourself because there's no reason to self-justify, every day you wake up trying to justify why you're here, through what you do, you are free to imagine as a kid runs freely into his father's arms, you're free to live in the fullness of God's spirit, to imagine and see what God's doing all around you. There would be creativity to the left and to the right. You'd also be willing to be openly broken in front of people. I can stand before you today because of one reason. I can stand before you openly broken because in Christ, I'm completely whole. Only the gospel can make you completely humbled because you can't earn it. I could, I, hide, I hid behind my success as much as I could, as long as I could. Failure brought me to a greater truth that would hold me together. And not just humbled that I can't earn it, but completely confident because nothing can move me from it. I'm a child of God and I can stand before you as someone who's the glory of God rests upon. And that is the holy swag that Metro needs. I know we'd be braver, we'd risk more because we're held under the everlasting arms of God. We'd take more chance, we wouldn't fear failure as much as we do if we believe these truths that they began to govern our life Instead of perfectionism and the need to make everything right that makes us irritable and angry and sometimes horrible human beings to other people, that makes us selfish about our time and takes all of our bandwidth, instead you'd be free because the verdict already given, you would just work with the spirit of excellence because you just want to honor the one who has honored you with his name. And you would find a new freedom to live, to be excellent at what you do, to be excellent in the church, to be put time and energy to because it's such a thrill and a joy because you already have the outcome. You've been given the verdict. God's made the most emphatic statement in the history of the world about you. You can live free. My journey into the heart of God, it took me some time to get there. Um, I loved God. I went to seminary in the late 80s because I believed he called me there. I wanted to serve him. But shame, as much as I had the devotion as Peter had, shame was still governing things in my life. It still had a power over me. I left seminary largely because I felt inferior academically. Even though I was getting good grades, I didn't feel like a scholar and I thought that pastors should be scholars. And God opened up another path for me to coach. 
I left halfway through my degree program. But God gave me a different assignment. But do you know his gifts and calling are irrevocable? (laughs) They don't just go away. It doesn't matter the title or what you do. God's gifts and his calling, because he made you and fashioned you, are irrevocable. And so I coached. And I was really a pastor when I coached. I, I think Dave, my friend, would, would attest to that. But I was also very driven because I had a need to succeed because I still wasn't walking in the fullness and the reality of my identity in Jesus Christ. So here I am conflicting. I want to serve God, but I want to be the greatest coach that ever lived. That could make me a hard taskmaster at times. You think I'm a quiet, gentle guy. People have a hard time believing I coached, but you have to know the competitive spirit that burned within me and the anger sharks that I know he felt at times because it was partly tied to my identity. I wanted it for them too, but I needed it for me. And so as time went on, my life began to slowly unravel. The cracks of my stoic armor, the good example, the role model that I was to everybody, the people that looked up to me, There were cracks for me. People could see it. I knew it. I found some hotel lobby bars to be a comfort when I could be by myself and have an alter ego. And I left coaching really trying to save my marriage because it was falling fast. And I thought a change of jobs would do it, so I became a private jet business entrepreneur But wherever you go, you go, right? It wasn't the job. (laughs) There was something of a transformation, of something I needed to understand that was so much deeper. Our vision is transformation. It's not on the external thing. So the change, there's a change of scenery. And when my marriage failed, I poured myself into this business. And the same thing, I was largely successful at it for a number of years because I ate, drank, and slept it. There are some regrettable times that still make me cringe. I've given it to God, and so now it doesn't hold me hostage. I just like, wow, God, thank you for freeing me from this kind of mindset. But there were times, because the greatest earthly job I've ever had, and this I can say with confidence, has been as a father. Nothing, I loved my kids, I love them today. Nothing gave me greater joy. It was so pure and free. But I can tell you that sometimes, more than a few, I chose work, needless work, because my identity was there. And if I didn't work and I failed, I would cease to be a person that should be around. That was who I marked myself as. As a Christian, still stuck, because shame was still at play in my life. Eventually, as Time would go on, after successful years, my business would turn. In 2008, the market hit and things changed and you realize how flimsy and fragile. We always think everything's so secure when it's going well. We don't know that we're outside of Christ, how everything is thin ice. There's nothing that's gonna hold us in the end except him. But I needed to get there. And eventually, in losing something, I built my baby, so to speak founding person within that and losing it to the people with the big bucks that could do something with it. Margin got called, I couldn't answer. 
And at the same time, my son went away to a boarding school. A young age, I think he was 15, turning 16, or in that time frame. And all of a sudden, I was alone. I enjoyed him so much. It was just way too soon. It wasn't college yet. It was high school, boarding school, school that could help him. And then I was alone. No business, really, to speak of, and completely in the depths of my shame. I earned a, my, my, my drinking had led to my loss of a license before that. And I'd made life in so many ways so much harder and so much more filled with shame. But it was there at my worst, at the place I didn't think I'd ever come back from, and trying to figure out how I can make the best of this life, that God found me in that garden as he did Adam and Eve when he came looking for them. The same way Jesus looked at Peter when he thought, I'm done, it's a wrap. I am the worst human ever to fail Jesus when he needed and gave him that look, that look that spoke the language of a perfect love. God met me. I don't know how exactly, but these truths that I'm talking about today began to come root, take root in my life and they began to transform me from the inside out. My whole perspective of God changed. We think about repentance as something that we've got to change and it begins with who we understand God to be. Because when we understand God for who he is, we should start to understand who we are and our value to him. And we find that things begin to change and a small group was a big part of that. It was a bunch of guys that had been bitten by life. And we began to grow together. Um, I was able to be honest and talk about things. And God was beginning to put my life together. He began to speak to me about seminary didn't make any sense because I'm broke. I fear school. I'm too old now. It was the belief of a guy in the group that went and got my transcript because he worked at the seminary and showed me a pathway forward. And when I went there to that day in seminary, my daughter Amanda's best childhood friend Jillian was the one working reception. I didn't know who she was. I didn't recognize her. She said, Mr. Bailey. I had the courage to go make that appointment and she couldn't help me enough. The registrar overheard our conversation and said, I did some research, you can save 50 credits if you enroll this semester, if you wait another semester, they all go away. Wow. And in one fell swoop, God began to say, because I'm still trying to learn to live into these truths, now that he's revealed to me, it was still hard. And he sent me these people, don't underestimate the power of a gesture even. Yeah. You are the hands and the feet of God. And you know, ever had buyer's remorse? You know, so I signed the papers because I had two divine appointments or three with Greg, my small group guy, Jillian, the receptionist and the registrar. I still had buyer's remorse. I walked out feeling like a fool, like I got to pay for something that I hate doing that may never lead to a job because who's going to want me? And I walk out, heading out and income coming in is the dean of the seminary, a guy I knew for a lot of years. He looks at me, he gives me a hug, looks me in the eye and says, it's time, buddy. Not knowing any of the conversations, sweats me on the butt, because he's a strange guy like that, <laughs> and walked away. And I walked to my car, and I just broke down, because in that moment, I knew God believed in me, that he was standing for me, 
His glory was still upon me. And I want to share just in conclusion, you know, the tipping point of this healing process. And as we go through this series, you're going to find these moments. And don't fear it. God is so good. He'll go with you. But I began to pray. I said, God, show me where I'm still stuck. Where, where, am, I, where am I still feeling wounded and how I'm blind. I don't even know what it might be. And the Lord heard my prayer in a deep time of prayer. He showed up and he brought me to a memory I had long suppressed. I was back on the mound in third grade pitching in that little league championship game. All these years later, that's where I am. But I stay with it because I'd ask God to show me why this memory I couldn't quite understand. And I felt all the feelings of that day. I felt I could smell the spring air and the excitement of the crowd and the cheering. And I felt the fear of failing when it was unraveling for me and the deep, deep shame when it went south and I cost our team the game. And as I sat with that, the Lord's whispered to me, do you see me? Do you see me? I said, yeah, you're right there. You're with me. I thought you were long gone. I, I thought you were a million miles away. He goes, no, I'm always there. I'm with you. I was with you that day. I said, wow. That never made sense to me. I never knew. But I said, Lord, but you were there, but you were silent. You didn't do anything. I still needed an answer. I didn't understand that. The Lord gave me these powerful words to my heart. Uh, not audible words. It just exploded upon me. He said, I had to risk being misunderstood because I couldn't afford for you to live your life believing that my affection and my love for you, my belief in you was tied to anything you do. I already threw the perfect game on your behalf. I stand for you as your righteousness today. And now that you know that you're a son and my glory rests upon you, I want to use you and I want you to go forward and tell people everywhere you go, that the glory of God rests on them too. I want all my kids back. And the Lord began to set me free in a deeper, deeper way. I don't know where you're at in this story. I, who could know? Only you and the recesses of your heart and the way God, of course, knows you perfectly well. But I want you to know you, you can trust him as the gardener of your soul, that your failure was not final and he wants to make you exceedingly fruitful to his glory. He believes in you. He stands tall for you. And his glory rests upon you. And really, he's only asking you for one glance because he's looking straight away at you. And the psalmist said these words in Psalm 34. Those who look to the Lord are radiant and they will never be put to shame. Father, I pray that these words, your truth, your word, would give us a freedom we've never known before as a church, as individuals, Lord, that people would see the radiance of your glory upon us and the confidence of someone that can be completely open and real, but yet completely secure. Lord, what would that look like here at Metro? for us to truly lean in and believe and to accept these truths about you. We thank you that you are so good. Help us to believe, give us faith to believe 
the goodness of God, that our lives would demonstrate to everyone around us that there is a God who has defined them, who has claimed them, and wants their glory to rest upon them. We ask you for this, Lord, and that you would bless us as we continue on this journey. In Christ's name, amen. There's a few next steps if you have your bulletin or if you want to open your app that I want to take you through. And if you're new today or first, second timer, if you check any of these off, let this be your offering. We'll take an offering that, uh, basket around in just a little bit, but this, let this be your offering to us today. But if you accepted Christ, if you have received Christ as your savior today, please check that off, let us know. If today you said yes, to what God has done for you and said in faith that I believe that you are my father and through Christ, you've been born of his spirit the moment you say yes to him. Please check that off so we can know how to guide and help you and support you in your walk. I will ask God to reveal the ways I'm masking the shame I feel. I know that's a scary prayer, but I wanna invite you to ask. Underneath there, God's gonna show you some amazing things. He is completely kind. The Holy Spirit is the comforter to trust him in that way. I will, step, I will take the step to share my failure with another trusted person. I know that's always terrifying for me, but there's something about it that when you can say it to someone that just reinforces, they can't offer you forgiveness. There's no healing in their hands, but there is healing. We can just speak it because to say it and know you're completely loved is a powerful thing, and it can be life-changing. And I will consider how God wants to use my brokenness to be a bridge that leads others to the love of Christ. Your shining example, not trying to knock it, but what will really set people free is that in the midst of life, that you're like everybody else. You've been knocked around, you've failed, you've gotten up. Success and failure have been, you've known both, but you stand on solid ground and that's the hope that you'll give people, that you can be openly broken, that your life will lead people to what's true about them. And lastly, as an Inglewood resident, if you would just attend the city council meeting that Peter talked about on Tuesday night at 